You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. So why don't you turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17 uh, verses 8 through 16 is going to be our text this morning. And if you've been with us, this is what we, we do. This is what we're doing. We're walking our way through the book of Exodus, this incredible, unfolding, redemptive story of God's hand in the midst of the children of Israel, of the nation of Israel. And it's been a credible time. And so today uh, is going to be the shortest section of Exodus we've studied yet. So it's like eight verses, which in Philippians, it was, that was long. But uh, again, this is a different type of book. It's a historical account, and sometimes our stories or the scriptures that we're covering in one Sunday is a chapter or two. But this week, we're going to be finishing off and picking up in Exodus 17 uh, through verse 16. So why don't you read with me if you have a Bible? Um, picks up and says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephahedim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make heaven sure, excuse me, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is our authority. We, we place ourselves under it this morning and we gather here because we want to hear from you. We believe and we trust that your word is God-breathed and God-inspired, and it's profitable for training and correcting and edifying and equipping us, the man or woman of God, that we'd be adequately equipped for every good work. And we thank you, God, that um, you want to speak to us this morning as our Heavenly Father. You want to share and communicate your heart and your attributes and your plan and your promises to us. And God, I, I just pray for your help to communicate your word. Pray that you'd anoint my lips to be your mouthpiece, to communicate your truths to us this morning. You just say, this is your time, have your way. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So here's where we are, right? This is Exodus, second book of the Bible. It's what we, the, you know, the, these five, this first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. They're all written by Moses, and they detail quite a bit. Not only is it creation, 
but we've seen freedom from bondage, the formation of a nation. Uh, we'll see in a little bit, there's, there's laws, there's the Ten Commandments, there's standards that are given, um, what it would look like for the people of God to live like God, to be set apart for the rest of the world. And it's the story of the children of Israel gathering, you know, going through the wilderness, God teaching them, then disobeying, all kinds of stuff happening. And it ends, the Pentateuch ends right on the eve of the children of Israel entering into the promised land. There's lots happening and it can be confusing, but it is so rich and good for us to go through and not just throw it out because we read Leviticus once and there was seven chapters about sacrifice and it didn't apply to me at all and I'm so confused that I've never opened it up since. In light of context, in light of understanding the, the, the 30,000 view, 30,000 foot view of the story, everything is so potent and powerful and meaningful and the Old Testament is absolutely should be read because all of scripture the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, all of these books, the, the whole of Scripture points us to Jesus. It's one unified story telling us what would culminate upon the cross. And so these Old Testament stories, like the one we're in right now, talking about God's redemption and salvation, it, it points to the cross. And the Jews, the children of Israel, God's chosen people, that's who we're looking at in the story of Exodus. But through Christ, right, through his precious blood, we too, those of us that are non-Jewish, Gentiles, of every ethnicity and culture are now grafted into the family of God because of what Christ did upon the cross. So yes, this is a Jewish story of a Jewish people in the formation of a Jewish nation. And there are things that are specific to them and things that God put them through and spoke to them in this time. But even though this is Israel's story, this is also our story. And because of Christ, it's our story too. And it's so important to see and know how God moved in the formation of the world and his people because we see how we see God's heart. We see God's character. We see his attributes displayed. And again, it, what we read today, it's in relation to Israel, but because of the cross, it's, it's for us too. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no shadow in his turning. There's no changing. So the way in which he dealt and, and went about things and communicated things and his grace and forgiveness and mercy and justice, that's all the same God. It's not two different gods. Like, oh, God of the Old Testament, he's like kind of the mean, angry God in the sky. And then the, the New Testament, I read it because it's like more warm and fuzzy and it's Jesus and I know more about him. Same God. Same story. All leading to Jesus. All pointing. All communicating God's hearts and attributes and character for humanity. And we've seen that. Right up to this point. Right, We're in chapter 17, but the first 11 chapters of this book have been about the exodus, right? The, the, it detailed the enslavement and the miraculous freeing of a whole people and the formation of a whole nation. If you, have to, if you remember, this isn't just like 100 people that got freed from Egypt. Um, historians think it's about two and a half million people. I mean, this was centuries of, 
uh, slavery, there was um, ethnic cleansing that was happening. And so God miraculously, through a man called Moses, right, he's our, our main character. Actually, God's the main character, but he's been using Moses, right, as his mouthpiece and his brother Aaron to be spokespeople for God. In front of Pharaoh, let my people go. And now Moses and Aaron and, and the crew have led them out by God's power and his provision. God has saved Israel. They've gone out into the wilderness and Moses has stretched out the staff, the staff of God. And he's parted the Red Sea and all of Egypt has finally escaped. And once and for all, Pharaoh and his armies are finally swallowed up and defeated. We've done all that. Like it's been a couple of months of just digging in and seeing what God's done and seeing how he's moved. And the real journey has begun as they settle into desert life. Talked about that the last few weeks, the reality of what it means to be going towards the promised land, right? God is leading them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. He's miraculously giving them water. Um, he's giving them manna to eat every morning. God has freed them. God is leading them. God is providing for them. Like, what more could you ask for? Like, seriously. He's freed our entire generation up from slavery. Now he's leading us. There's no question of where we should go. We're hungry. We're thirsty. God's providing. All of our needs are being taken care of. And, there's, and what happens in our, in, our, in our section today is that God actually leads them into battle. This is the first time they've encountered anything like this since Pharaoh. Like they're finally out of it. Maybe they think like, we're done here. We're not gonna do that anymore. The promised land is that way. God is leading us. Everything is good. And all of a sudden, by God's sovereignty and his purpose, we see that there's lessons that he wants to teach them. There's things in which he's putting Israel through to show his power and his greatness. They're not done learning. They're in the school of... of uh, discipleship, so to speak. They're not done. It's not over. They're, they're a continued work in progress. There's lessons that God wanted to teach them from leading them into battle, and we too today reading this, not on the Sinai Peninsula, not thousands of years ago, but in our context in Hawaii now, where we call home, we can also glean and take away these truths for us. For those of us that are in this room, that call upon the name of the Lord. That's what the Old Testament, that's what, how you would know if someone was a believer, is those that called upon the name of the Lord. That's what believers were identified as. For us, if we're disciples or followers of Jesus, when we are following and obeying God, what we see in the text here, and I believe is true about us too, is the first point I want to talk about today, is that we will encounter opposition so for Israel, what are they doing? They're following God. They're obeying. They're, they're not being disobedient right now. They're complaining. There's a lot of that happening. But they're, they're following God. They're trying to be obedient to what God has for them. And what happens? They encounter the armies of Amalek or the Amalekites. Right? The Amalekites actually come from the line of Esau. And for centuries, they've actually been known enemies of Israel. The Amalekites uh, are a nomadic people. They're, they're living in the Sinai Peninsula there. And they were actually known for being a people who pillaged and stole and were up to no good in the Sinai Desert. And there's really no rhyme or reason 
to attack the Israelites other than they were just easy prey and there was lots of supplies. There wasn't some big meaning to that. They're just like, whoa, all of Israel, our known enemies are here with all their kids and all their stuff. This is going to be an easy fight. This is what we do. But what happened was, as the people of God were obeying God's leading, they encountered opposition. It wasn't that they were doing something wrong or in sin. God led them into opposition. That's important to know. And we too, anytime we as followers of Jesus, like we're trying to love the Lord, like we're striving to obey. We don't always get it right. We're not perfect. But like we're really trying to like follow Follow the word of God and obey it. His will and his word and his ways. We will also encounter opposition. I don't necessarily mean today, you know, I'm going to talk about persecution, at least for our time here, or necessarily trials and tribulations, but we as followers of Christ actually have two very formidable enemies that at all times are trying to oppose the work of God in us and through us, it's the, called the flesh and called the devil. Very formidable enemies that the, their desire of what they want to do is disrupt our walks, distract and ruin, kill and destroy anything to do with God. Much like the Amalekites, they wanted to steal and kill and destroy anything that was happening. Right, the flesh. Our flesh is our selfish, independent nature. It's our old man. It's the part of us that desires to exalt self over God. That's our flesh. We all battle with it. And the Bible tells us that after we're saved, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, right? Ephesians 1. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. God in the person of the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us. But this side of heaven, we still live in a fallen world in our fallen flesh. And in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, right, the book of Galatians, in chapter 5, he actually lays out the fruit of, the results of, the effects of both the flesh at work in our lives. Like, if you let the flesh, like, just dictate your life, this is what it's going to produce. There's a list of, like, horrible things. But the Spirit of God lives in us, and the fruit of the Spirit of God at work in you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Goodness? I don't know. None of those. You guys got it. You know what I'm talking about. Paul lays this out that inside of us, there's, there's, like, there's constant opposition happening. He says this in Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit so you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So, so literally, your body and mind, your flesh is in a constant fight whether to glorify God or glorify self. You guys know what I'm talking about. Like the flesh is our enemy, is an enemy of God that wants to distract and shipwreck and stop our journey of following and obeying him. There's a real formidable enemy that like, we live in all the time that we live with, this, this tension of, of, of wanting to follow God, but our flesh wanting to exalt itself and to produce the fruit of that. We also, another formidable enemy is the devil, right? Or, or the evil one or the adversary, a fallen angel the Bible would speak of, whatever you want to call him. 
The devil desires nothing more. Like this is his goal, is to erode, damage, and destroy our relationship and our understanding of God. The devil, the evil one, desires nothing more for us to doubt God, believe false things about God, question God's goodness and his character and even his existence. He's smart, he's, he's crafty, he's wicked. The Bible would describe the devil as the father of lies, John 8, the accuser of the brethren, accuser of us, you know, Revelation 12. It also says that the devil disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11. Our, our, the evil one, the enemy of God's people and God's will and God's purposes, will do anything he can to distract and lie and create fear, you name it, to keep us from trusting and following God. We even saw this with Jesus in the wilderness, like being tempted, you know, like in Matthew 4. The devil was even telling Jesus half-truths using scripture out of context to try to distort God's plan, his will, and his character. And like the flesh, the devil's objectives are contrary to Christ. Jesus himself, speaking of this, John 10.10, he says, the thief, the evil one, the devil, he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants for us. But I have come that they might have life and that abundantly. These are real forces at work. There's a spiritual battle going on against us. So for Israel, it was the Amalekites. That was a real enemy that was coming against their obedience to God. They, they were, it was real. It was in their face. And just like that battle was against them, there's a spiritual battle against us coming against the character, the name of our great God and Savior. Don't worry, there's hope. There's good news to that. I'm going to get there in a second. But what we, the second thing that we see in our text today, not only are we seeing opposition, but we also see this really visual lesson here in the text that we need each other in the midst of opposition. I don't know if you caught that, but there's this like really cool, incredible picture of Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms. Maybe you learned it in Sunday school, this battle of the Amalekites. But they're battling, right? So Joshua is down like with a sword with, with, with Israel battling the Amalekites. And Moses, he's up on the hill and he's got the staff of God, right? And the staff of God has always signified the person, power, and promises of God um, before Pharaoh, um, against the plagues, with the parting of the Red Sea, with the making of water. Now the staff of God, when Moses is raising the staff up, they're winning. And when he lets it down, they start losing. Like it's this weird video game kind of thing happening, right? It's like this, like, when he's up, they're good. When he's down, they're not good. And the point is here is that God, it was very purposeful. Like, he didn't have to do that. Like, there wasn't, Aaron and her weren't with Moses at the Red Sea when they parted the Red Sea. That was a bigger task, I thought. But it's so purposeful here. And I don't think out of coincidence at all to show Israel and us that Moses needed Aaron and her to gain victory. Israel gained victory by a community effort. 
We aren't, we aren't meant or even equipped to encounter opposition on our own. We're not meant to. And if there's a few things I would hope that all of us would know in relation to how God designed humanity is that he desires us as his church to be a body, to be a complex body made up of individual parts, and we're all piece of that. We're all a part of it. God designed it so that we would do life together with one another in community. Like over and over, if you read scripture, it's all over the place. This phrase, one another, comes up in scripture. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, gather together, pray for one another. The list goes on. This is like a a small look, this battle is a small look to this truth, small look into this truth, especially when one of us is just getting beaten up and really encountering opposition and struggle when it comes to the flesh and the devil. Like when we're getting beat up by the things of the world and our flesh and our old man and we're getting lied to and we're like doubting and right when you're in it, God can powerfully use each other in community to come alongside each other and pray for each other, to do battle with them, like to encourage each other, to bear burdens, to fight alongside each other, to see God get the victory. Like that's a part of it. Church family, my family, we need each other. We aren't meant and designed to do life alone. And I understand for some of us, that's the last thing you want to hear. This is not easy to do. Like, it's not easy to open up, to be vulnerable, right? To let each other in. Like, in our individualistic society, this day and age, whoo, that's the last thing we want to do. I'm good Instagram. I'm good social media. I'm good email. Don't call me. Who calls? Who talks on the phone anymore? We're texting. Don't, I don't want any interaction. I'm good. If I could just be alone and do my whole life alone, I would be happier. I know some of you are saying that. But what is necessary for survival and spiritual well-being for the long term So that all of us, whenever our time's up, to rightfully follow and obey Christ through it all till we see Jesus face to face, you better believe that we need Aaron and hers in our lives. You're setting yourself up for failure if you just think, no, I'm good. That's why when people, and I get it, I don't need the church, I can just love Jesus, On my own. Part of that's true. Part of it's absolutely not true. When someone says, all I need is Jesus, that's true, but also God designed it actually for us to love Jesus and be with Jesus together in community. Can't escape that in scripture. You can't. We need people in our life to see that we're struggling before we do. These are the best kind of people that have a relational currency with you, that know you, that like 
can just read your body language, know you didn't show up to those things, haven't seen you at church for a while, haven't come to a Hana group, know you're not doing well. If you're in community with people, you realize when someone's out of community, when someone's not doing well. We need people to drop stuff to come make sure we're okay. For a lot of us, that's hard to receive. Like, I don't want to be the one that, like, I don't want your pity. I don't want your, nope, you need us, we need you. We need you to do the same thing to us, we need to do it to you. This is the point that's happening here. And again, I don't want to just say this, like, I want to do it. Like, I want to, I want to lead that way and live that way, and I want our church to be that. Like, I, I, I don't just want to be like, oh, how's, how's church? Oh, you mean, like, Sunday's at 10 to, like, 11.45? A church? Like, no, no, that church, the body of Christ. Like, this is one part. What happens on Sundays at Aliolani, that's one part. But, I, I, guys, in order to actually truly live into authentic community, like, we have to hold relationship and togetherness high. Like, this church, Ohana, has to be important to us, and each of us has to go out of our way, which we don't want to do, maybe to create relationships, to be in community, to be vulnerable, to be open, so that we can do life together. Amen? This is the challenge, and this is the call, and this is the charge for us. And lastly, and most importantly, last point, is that God has the victory. Who wins this battle against the Amalekites? Is it Joshua? No. Is it Moses, Aaron, or her? No, it was God, right? The battle against the enemies of God's people and purposes was won by the power of God himself. That's the significance of the staff of God. Yeah, God used them in community. Yeah, God used Moses. Yeah, God used Joshua. But who actually won the battle? God won the battle by his power. And this is what we need to like recall and remember and walk in that God sent his son to die on the cross so that we would be forgiven and freed from the power and penalty of our sin. Right? The finished work of Christ and his resurrection from the dead, what does it do? It gives us victory over sin, death, and the devil. In another letter, of Paul to the church in Colossae, Colossians 2, verse 15, he says that Christ's death and his resurrection actually publicly disarmed the spiritual ruler and authorities triumphing over them. Right? So in the book of Romans, also tells us that once all of us, pre-Christ saving us, were once defeated slaves, slaves to sin, and its consequences. But through the person, the power, and the blood of Christ, we've been freed from defeat. And the death, freed from defeat and death, and now walk in victory and in life. I just paraphrase Romans chapter 6. Go read it later. So our flesh and the devil, as nasty and powerful and crafty and evil as they may be, they're coming from and fighting from a place of defeat. Like, they've already lost the game. Like, there's already a scoreboard, and, and Jesus won upon the cross. They know it. We know it. Satan has lost. 
Like the flesh and sin no longer have any power or dominion over us. And so when we're battling against the flesh or getting lied to by the devil or whatever it is, they're fighting and trying to get all that they can, but through Christ, we can stand and fight and live victoriously. Problem is we forget that. Like we forget it. We fail to cry out for Christ's power and his strength. We take our eyes off him. And the truth is, He's fighting for us, and he's already won. What I love is, is this is a picture of that. Like, this story is a picture uh, for us of what the cross is. But I love the visual imagery here because it says the name of God is, is Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is our banner. Right? Through all this battle, God wins. It wasn't us. It was God by his power. He saved us from the Amalekites. And there's this turning point. There's a statement that's made here that this is a part of God's character that he is our banner, Jehovah Nisi, that he is to be lifted high and magnified and exalted because he's the one that's won the battle and is winning our battles. And we can confidently hold him up as a banner. But what's so cool in the original language and in context is the thought was this banner was actually what, what you'd call a, a signal pole. So right, like in ancient battle or war, in order to tell troops or horses to charge or retreat or give orders, there's no walkie-talkies. There's, you can't yell, can't play telephone. There was a signal pole. There was a tall pole with different flags, different colors, maybe even a banner on it that would tell the troops different things. If you've seen Braveheart, you've seen this, you know what I'm talking about. This is the concept of the banner. In the midst of opposition, look to God. He can save you. This is the idea here. This is the concept here. And for us today, we need to always have a clear view of who God is and what he's done for us. We fail and forget that. We're not living from a place of victory anymore. We're caught up with, with opposition. We're overwhelmed. And we fail to have the Lord as our banner. Could end there and we could worship. But one of my favorite parts of the text, you might not even have seen. It's verse 14. It's this little statement. God tells Moses to make sure, to, to write down in the scroll what happened, to, to remember what happened, but then he points out one person, God. God of the universe knows what he's doing, tells Moses, I want to make sure that you tell Joshua. Remind him what happened here today. And do you guys know who Joshua is? If you haven't read the Bible, then I'm I'm happy to tell you. But this is the first time we've heard of this guy. We haven't heard of him yet. He's not been around. Right, Right after the Pentateuch, right as the children of Israel are about to get in the promised land, We have the book of Joshua. And this is the same Joshua who would end up leading Israel into the promised land. And I am going to give a spoiler alert. Moses doesn't make it in. Moses, after all of this, doesn't make it into the promised land. And Joshua is his successor. Moses dies right before they enter. Joshua, this unknown character in our text today, we don't know anything about him, becomes his successor. Here's what's insane. Here's what's mind-blowing. I'm going to get to my point. Joshua here had no battle experience. Why would he be battling in slavery in Egypt? He doesn't know what he's doing. 
None of Israel does. And so it's kind of even weird, like, why would Moses pick him, right? Maybe he's just the, like the fighter by nature, like, who knows? Like Joshua's just crazy, so let's just have him lead this thing. But God distinctly makes sure Moses tells him what happened, and maybe it's because Joshua had a big head and he thought he had won. Maybe, right? He's fighting down there, and yeah, they're losing a bit, but they end up winning, and Joshua's like, I'm the man, you put me in charge, I won this battle. And Moses is like, I want to make sure that you knew that this whole staff thing and me and God and Aaron and her were happening up on the mountain. It might have been super humbling for Joshua. Who knows? But this is the point. That, that's extrapolation. I just made that up. Who knows if that happened? But no one, this is true now, but no one but God knew what Joshua would need to do 40 years later. It's just a random kid that's in the desert that got a victory. But God knew that he would be the one to lead the whole nation by God's power, keyword, by God's power, into the gnarliest battle after battle to finally settle in the promised land. That's the book of Joshua. Go read it if you haven't. God knew that Joshua needed to fight this battle in Exodus 17 and remember his first battle and this battle well. And being an all-knowing, caring father, right? I can just imagine God's heart in this. Like, Josh, there's something coming up later down the line that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. Again, I'm, I know I'm making this up kind of. You know what I'm saying? This is what God is telling Moses to tell Joshua. Like, this is this, this concept. It's important that, Joshua, you remember what happened here today against the Amalekites in the desert. Because what happened today and how this went, you need to recall and remember for later. Joshua, it wasn't you who won this fight. It was me. I'm the one who was fighting for you. It's my victory by my power. And 40 years later, 40 years later, on the eve of the crossing of the Jordan, this new leader who would have to tackle the biggest battles of his life, I'm going to paraphrase Joshua chapter 1. You guys probably all know it. You maybe even have it on your wall in your house. But God, same God that gave victory before, said, Joshua, don't fear. I'm with you. Don't look to the right or to the left. Meditate on my word day and night, and I will give you this land. Those are the words of Exodus 17. Like, what word did Joshua have? In Joshua chapter one, what word? God says to Joshua, meditate on my word day and night. What word? He didn't have the Bible. It was the scroll. It was one of the scrolls was this battle was written on. God said, Moses, don't forget to write this down and tell Joshua because in 40 years, I'm gonna tell him again to read that same scroll day in and day out and not remember what he, I've done for him today. Like, that's crazy, most, uh, Joshua was literally reading and rereading about the battle against the Amalekites when he was standing on the eve of crossing the Jordan into the promised land. God was purposeful to teach this lesson to the entirety of Israel, but he went after one man. That's crazy. 
If you, if you read the book of Joshua, if you know what I'm talking about, this is so significant. But what all of this does is it's pointing to the cross, the place of ultimate victory. So for us in this room, not only should we be excited about the Bible and you should go read it for yourself because it's amazing, but we should stand and walk in the power of God in our lives as we follow him, knowing we may encounter opposition, but God is the one who has the victory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that there's nothing that you do that's not purposeful. And even in the midst of opposition and hardship and uh, when we encounter even the things of the flesh or, 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 you know, the arrows of the enemy, that we fight and stand from a place of victory, that we can hold on to your word and your promises and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can, we can walk. But God, we also want to function as a body of believers, the way that you've designed. And so God, we ask that we would, for each other, come alongside and pray for, encourage, uh, watch out for, be there, hold up the arms of those around us in community that you've placed next to us in our lives. And as we enter into a time of worship now, Father, we want to worship you for who you are and what you've done. Once again, we're reminded that you are absolutely incredible. That everything you do has been amazing and wonderful and perfect because you're perfect. So as we spend some time now, Lord, at your feet in your throne room. God, we want to worship you because you're deserving of it. And would you remind us now of, of your goodness and your promises and your attributes. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.